Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am super excited to have Dr. Marcy Catayo Medruga, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, um, on our show today. She is a physical therapist turned functional medicine practitioner. We've talked about functional medicine many times on our show before, and it's actually fixing problems instead of just treating symptoms. And she's going to go into some um, stories today. One of them is her personal journey and also a story of how she saved a patient's life. So we're also going to talk about how you can really change your life in six weeks. And I am super excited as always to, to learn on our podcast. So Marcy, welcome to our show. Thanks, John. It's great to have you here. So Marcy, tell us your story, how a physical therapist turned into a functional medicine practitioner. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I had twins in 2010. Um, and after they were born, I just started having some health issues. I had started with kind of like a rash developing on my abdomen while I was pregnant that just kind of kept getting worse and then developed into pretty severe back pain. And as a physical therapist, that was the primary thing I treat and I'm pretty good at treating it. So when I wasn't helping myself, I finally went and saw my doctor and they kind of blew me off and told me that it was just, I just needed to take Tylenol or Aleve or cycle through Tylenol, Aleve, Advil. If that didn't work, they could give me the pain medication and the muscle relaxer and all the things that they do um, for back pain in this country. Um, and it, it wasn't, my body doesn't respond well to medications. My entire life I've had trouble even taking Tylenol. And so I just kind of thought that's not the answer. Um, and I, a lot of people in my family have autoimmune disorders. And so I started looking at, well, what does rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis look like? How does it typically start? And decided that maybe that was what I had. And so I uh, went back to my primary care doctor and said, again, I don't want the medications because I don't respond well to them. I just want the referral to a rheumatologist to get this checked out because I think this is what's happening with me. And I want to get on top of this early. And she still prescribed all the meds. I never went and picked them up. Um, and then sent me to the rheumatologist. And I went to the rheumatologist's office, told them a little bit about my story. And they said, okay, well, we want to inject you with this drug and see how your body responds to it. And I said, wait, isn't there something like a test we do first? Like there's genetic testing that can be done. There's imaging that can be done. There's all these other things. And they said, this is the way we do it in our office. If you don't like it, you can get the F out. My husband was sitting in the appointment with me. I hope you guys walked out. We did. <laughs> um, but it's a really sad, you know, I realized that was a person who I trusted and referred people to, right? Because they're a rheumatologist, they're a specialist at this. People need someone to manage an autoimmune disorder for them. Like that was my belief pattern before that experience. Um, and it was really disheartening, really disheartening to see that. And even, you know, my own family physician who knows that I treat back pain because I send them patients all the time saying, I know you said you don't do well with these drugs, but just try them anyway. Like just, blowing me off like it didn't matter. Um, and so I knew that I had to find a different way around it. And um, I know you've interviewed James Maskell quite a few years back, but he was one of the first people that I found talking a lot about functional medicine. And uh, he interviewed a gentleman by the name of Sachin Patel, uh, who I have then had as a mentor for a while. 
um, and watching their conversations around how we manage symptoms instead of cure disease in this country, um, I really decided that there was a different path and I needed to find it and started looking into um, more natural ways to help with autoimmune disorders and literally went from four years of back pain that was a struggle to get up every day to no back pain in six weeks. Incredible. So tell us how you did that. So part of it was really changing my nutrition strategies. Um, I, I've never been somebody who eats a lot of junk food, but as we know, when you have an autoimmune disorder, there are some foods that can create a little bit more inflammation. Um, one of them primarily was gluten. So I took, I eliminated all gluten from my diet. I've been gluten-free actually now for about 10 years. Um, and that, that was the first step that I did. Um, and that actually cleared up the rash that I had. Um, that, and that was helpful. But now, interestingly, anytime I get glutened by someone accidentally, I can see the rash come back and it's like it follows that piece of food through my intestine and you can see it on my abdomen follow wow. that piece of food. It's fascinating. Wow. Um, you should catch on video sometime. <laughs> like do the last video. Serious. I probably <laughs> is very interesting. I've never heard that before. I, I believe it. I've never heard it before. But I do. I get anxiety sometimes even when I eat out at a restaurant because I'm like, oh my gosh, is this going to be... <laughs> Right. Um, so I have anxiety about food, not because I don't like to eat, because I actually really like food, um, but because I'm afraid that I'm going to accidentally get a cross-contamination exposure somewhere. Um, and then I, after doing the gluten, I took out for a while all of the nightshades. So I had given up mm -hmm. things like bell peppers, which I love. Um, I gave up eggplant. I gave up... Um, tomatoes for a while and anything that was tomato based and I'm Italian. So that's a problem. Oh. <laughs> um, and then also <laughs> gave up potatoes are nightshade. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So did you give up potatoes? I did. Okay. Um, and I still don't eat those. That so no, no nachi. No, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was very sad. <laughs> um, and then I also gave up things like any kind of sugar, even um, any artificial sweeteners. Um, I gave up honey for a time. Um, anything that looked like it cre could create inflammation in the system. Um, and I gave up all grains for six weeks, including rice, um, quinoa, all of that. And then um, as the pain started going away, kept continuing to work on things like core stabilization and segmental stabilization in the spine, and then started slowly adding stuff back in, kind of like you would with a newborn. So I would put something in my diet that I hadn't had in a while and then wait three or four days and see what the response was. And kind of the responses I was looking for were things like, do I have aches and pains? Are my hands swollen? Can I still get my wedding ring on and off easily? Um, did it change frequency of like urination or defecation? Did my bowel movements change? Are they, am I more constipated or have more loose stools? Like, what does that look like? So I was really evaluating every possible symptom, including how did I sleep? Was it easy for me to fall asleep? Did I wake up multiple times? Was I? Did I wake up before my alarm? Did I wake up with my alarm? Did I feel refreshed when I woke up? So I was really trying to evaluate every single thing and see how my body responded to that food. And for the most part, I've added back in most things. I still don't eat um, a whole lot of grains because my body just doesn't tolerate them well. 
Um, and I am very careful with um, some foods. Like I, I did find out that I had this weird um, irritation occasionally in my mouth when I would eat spinach. And when I say irritation, people are going to think this is crazy, but um, the whole inside of my mouth would peel about three days after I ate spinach. And for me, that was just like, a oh, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. It's probably my toothpaste because when I was little, I was allergic to toothpaste. Um, and then I had an anaphylactic reaction to spinach and thought, hmm, that's not normal. <laughs> I wonder if it's, you know, because spinach is high in minerals because it's grown in, in the ground. I wonder if it has to do with minerals in the spinach. So it, it's possible. There's all kinds of things that that could be, right? Um, yeah. One of them, I have an anaphylactic reaction to latex, and spinach is in the latex cross-contamination of foods. Mm, and interestingly, spinach also is a gluten cross-contamination reaction for some reason. Um, in the literature, if you look that up, you'll find like gluten and spinach, the protein is seen very similar and your body, just reacts to it. Interesting. Yeah. So um, basically, you did an elimination diet, and you started adding things back in. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's incredible. Do you ever wonder in your practice? I mean, I know when my wife and I, my wife is also a pharmacist. When we started, you know, doing more functional medicine type stuff, um, um, personally and professionally, when we saw it work on people, we wonder, you know, and, and maybe you're in the same boat. Do you wonder how many people? have chronic back pain and are on medications are on pain medications for the rest of their life to treat chronic back pain. And really all they need to do is change their diet. Do you ever wonder that? I think it's 90%. I do too. And, and, you know, let me tell you, and you, you being a physical therapist, you will understand this. Me being a pharmacist, it was hard for me to understand at first, but speaking of elimination diets, have you heard of Dr. Sean Baker, the carnivore diet guy? Yes. Okay. I think the carnivore diet is the ultimate elimination diet. Yes. I mean, if, if anybody's having problems, any kind of food, I tell them eat red meat. That is in, in, in red meat only because I have never, ever, ever heard of anybody that has, maybe you can help me with this, that have had um, a problem with red meat. I know it gets vilified in the literature that it causes heart attacks and all this. That's a complete lie. So I think that's one of the best elimination diets is is to um, you know start with just eating red meat. So carnivore diet. Anyway, I interviewed him. Story of him, you may know this. He's an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. He basically got blackballed because he was telling his patients to change their diet before he did surgery, and he was having them go keto actually. Yeah, just before he went carnivore, and then um, they'd come back eight weeks later and. They wouldn't have knee pain, so they wouldn't need surgery. Yeah. And so I asked him, I said, you know, I mean, being a pharmacist, I understand that 80% of the medications that we use every day could be eliminated if people just change their lifestyles. Right. Period. But, you know, as a pharmacist, I don't know about orthopedic surgery. So I'm thinking, you know, I get it. People that are obese, they might need a hip replacement or a knee replacement because they're obese. What is that? Probably 25% of the population. So I asked him, I said, what number of patients could um, not have to have surgery if they change their lifestyle? And he said this live on my podcast, 70% of people Easily. would not have to have surgery, orthopedic surgery, if they change their lifestyle. You believe that as a physical therapist? Oh, yeah. Easily. That's cr- I mean, does that just not blow your mind? Yeah. But the other thing about him specifically and his, um, telling people to go keto and then also telling people carnivore diet, right? 
um, is that everyone you talk to fully believes that the way to get your body healthy is to be alkaline, right? But keto is not alkaline and neither is the carnivore diet. And these people swear by alkalinity, but then they also swear by his carnivore diet. And I'm like, you can't, you can't do both because one's acidic and one's alkaline. They're, they're literally the exact opposites. And also all the research now is showing that even with cancer, keto is better, which is an acidotic state. So how is alkalinity better? Right. And yeah, and there's a lot going on there. And my, here's my opinion about the alkalinity versus acidity. Um, you know what? If you eat good food that you you know your body responds to, the pH stuff will take care of itself. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's kind of how I look at it, being kind of a chemistry, chemistry background. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, the alkalinity, acidity thing, I'm not sure about that. It's just like eat real food. And, you know, the cancer thing, I think with keto, you know, cancer, we know, feeds on sugar. Right. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't like vilifying sugar. Sugar gets vilified a lot. And I, and, and I don't, I don't, sugar is not a villain. Um, processed foods are a villain. And um, too much sugar is, especially if your body is not burning it. But right. I'm an endurance athlete myself. And if I don't eat sugar when I'm on a five-hour mountain bike ride, I will bonk and possibly die. That's so interesting that you say that because yeah. I um, I used to do triathlons and okay. half iron distance was like my prime distance. Um, and when I switched my diet away from the carbs and went more protein, um, I actually started performing a lot better. Um, and and I, I'm with you. I mean, and and... and the key, the, the pro keto people. I mean, I have a twin brother that has never ever done endurance sports in his life. He's a power lifter and bodybuilder, and he tries to tell me how to eat on a five hour mountain bike race. <laughs> and I appreciate his comments, but you know, he says, Well, you eat sardines. I'm like, Have you ever tried to eat sardines when your heart rate's 170? Yeah. You can't drink water. I mean, so. I love it how the pro keto people try to tell endurance athletes how to how to how to eat, but here's what endurance athletes have known for years: you, if you're doing a five hour endurance um, race, you know you're burning probably between 700 and 1,000 calories an hour, 500 to 700, let's say 500 to 1,000, depending on on how intense you're going. Well, you know you you can't eat that much. You can right. at that intensity, you can probably only absorb 200 calories an hour. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then you have to have the ability to burn fat and to um, make energy out of fat. So it's not like endurance athletes haven't known about that process for a long time. Right. Keto people still vilify, well, during those races, you shouldn't eat this. And it's like, hey, look, you, you do whatever you can to get by. And glucose during those races are not going to hurt you. You're burning it. Your body needs the glucose. Yeah. And I, I used to do... Um pure honey. Like I would buy the honey packets, not the honey stinger um, things, but the pure honey packets. I would buy the little ones and I would take those with me on the run. But like on the, on the bike, um, I was trying to eat something that had more protein and more fat. So I was eating usually almond butter or um, something like that um, because it just helped me get through. But I also think knowing what I know now, like I have celiac and I didn't get diagnosed until I was 34. So I think what was happening with eating, you know, the, all the things that are prepped 
for endurance athletes, right, are full of grains. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And so I think probably what was really happening is my body was shutting down because it wasn't the nutrition I needed. And if I went back and tried to do it now, of course I could try and do it differently, but there's still not that many things that are gluten-free that are made for endurance athletes. And so you're stuck with something like just honey. And after a while, that much sugar, my stomach would get upset. Oh, I, I totally get it. Yeah. So, you, if you eat too many of those gels or, or any of that sugar, it's like after about hour four, that's when my body starts saying, I can't take anymore. I want just water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or... God forbid pretzels because I want the salt. Salt. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Problem is, is pretzels are kind of hard to pack when you're running it. I mean, they're not super hard to pack, but they are harder to eat because you need plenty of water than when you eat a pretzel. Yeah. Salty usually is is harder to. That's why it's important to have electrolytes. Yes. Boy, we went down a rabbit hole, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) But all of that's related, isn't it? I mean, totally. And here's here's the reality, and I'm sure this is what you tell your patients about functional medicine is. You got to figure out what works for you, and, yes. and and we can help coach people doing that. But you know, just like an endurance athlete, I mean, I found out a few years ago what works for me, and um, you know, and I, I stick with that. Um, but some people have a totally different program, and and it works for them. But um, you know, what what whatever works. Although I I think hardcore strict keto is very very difficult for um, an endurance athlete. Well, and the other thing that I find, particularly with women who choose to go strict keto um, or men who have had a history of gallbladder dysfunction in their family, is that it throws them into gallbladder attacks faster than it normally would. So even, you know, the thing used to be fat, 40, female, um, and fertile, right? That used to be the the gallbladder symptoms. Those used to be the... Right. um, And it's no longer that you need to be fat you can be 110 pounds and have a gallbladder attack because people are eating keto. Right. Um, and it's it's because they're not doing the other things to support, right? Like your gallbladder and your liver weren't meant to, because there's, and this is the other thing that people, one of the easiest solutions to pollution is dilution, right? Well, in the body, the easiest place to dilute something, whether you're human or animal, is the fat cells. So if you're eating keto and you're eating another animal's fat cells, you're eating all of their pollution. Because it's stored. We store stuff there. Right. In, in, in our fat. Right. And your body then has to process out that pollution or store it somewhere. And so when you teach your body to also, and this is a problem with keto, only burn fat and never burn sugar, Number one, your body stops tolerating sugar. But number two, you start releasing a lot of toxins really quick and your liver gets overwhelmed, gallbladder issue. And that's why you need to drink plenty of water and 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 things like that while you're while you're eating keto. And do a liver flush every month. Or or, or I mean. detox, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Help support that guy. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that you know, the strict keto people, and, and I believe me, I mean the strict keto people have made a religion out of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like vegans. They've, they've made a religion out of it and they don't want to give any people, any other options. And, um, right. but the reality of it is our, our body. I mean, when you look at the Krebs cycle, our, our main source of energy glucose. is glucose. Yeah. Period. 
period. Um, that's and, and whether we do that through glycogenolysis, gluconeogenesis, um, it, it doesn't matter. Or whether we do it through through um, eating our food, it doesn't matter. That's our major source of, of energy. And the keto people think there's just a switch that you switch off. It's either keto or um, glucose. You're either burning ketones, you're burning glucose. That, that's just not how our body works. Oh. We're burning all that stuff all the time. Yeah. You know, it might be like this, but it's not, it's not on or off. Um, one might be more than the other, but it's not on or off. I mean, and that's what I mean. Our bodies are designed very well. If we give them, if we give it the right tools to exactly. work and that yeah. includes the diet, like you're talking about. Yeah. So, Diet was so important, changing your life. So tell us, have you, who's have you changed anybody's life? Life's with a. Tell me this story where you've changed somebody's life um, with functional medicine. Um. So I have one that is literally. I mean, her surgeon told her, "You're really lucky you have her as a physical therapist. Otherwise, you'd probably be dead." Um, and that's Lauren, and she. Um, 28-year-old female, chronic patellar dislocator laterally. Um, they did some imaging, decided that her patellar tendon was attached too far laterally, and that's why she was dislocating. So they were just going to do an easy surgery to relocate the tendon to where it should be. Is that – speak to me as a dumb pharmacist. Is that a common thing or surgery? Uh, no, it's not a very common surgery. I it happens. It. It's probably in all of orthopedic knee surgeries. It's probably less than 0.01%. Oh, wow. um, and the people that you'll see it in are probably more hypermobile than you would expect anyway. Um, and they they tend to be most of the time when we see someone who's a patellar dislocator. Um, they were either a dancer or a gymnast when they were younger. Um. And they, the first time they dislocated was typically between the ages, it's a female between the ages of 10 and 15 because they went through a growth spurt and all of a sudden their body said, oh, wait, we're not going to hold this position anymore. Okay. That, that, that makes some sense. So tell us about her story. Um, so she had her surgery, came to me six weeks after surgery because they had wanted that knee to stay immobilized to have the patellar tendon really solidify in its new position. Um, and we were supposed to just work on range of motion and getting her strength back. But the first day in the office, I'm going through the history and what's been happening since surgery. And she's talking about six weeks of these migraine headaches that are relieved by nothing, not migraine medication, not pain medication injections not ice. And they happen at the same time every day. They're happening between 2 a.m. and they last until almost 4 a.m. daily. She had been to the ER. She had called her surgeon. She had talked to everybody. Um, they labeled her as drug-seeking at the ER, um, even though she wasn't even taking pain meds for her knee because it wasn't helping and she didn't need it for the knee. Um, and that first day, um, do you remember, because you're about the right age, do you remember those thermometers that were like the mood rings that you could stick on the forehead? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have those because when we see patients a lot of times after surgery, um, 
we want to know what the temperature is day one, because I usually get them one to two days after surgery. And then I want to know what the temperature progresses to be, especially if they start having more complaints of pain or swelling increases a lot, um, those kinds of things. Or if there starts to be a look of infection to the joint, Mm -hmm. I want to know what the temperature changes. So I take temperatures of people's surgeries, skin level in my office on a regular basis and so I took the temperature of her leg and it didn't even register like that nothing on the thing changed and I was like okay her leg does feel really cool to the touch I asked her if she had ice she said no and I was like all right well we'll go with this um her range of motion was a lot better than I expected I sent her home with a couple exercises she comes back two days later and she's got bruises, like small bruises, maybe the size of like a thumbprint up and down the opposite leg and a little bit on her abdomen. And she's still complaining of the headaches and the the surgery side feels fine. So I ask her if she minds if I do a little abdominal palpation and she's super tender around her liver to the point where she's flinching with just like one pound of pressure touch. I mean, just like you would touch a tomato and try not to leave an indent kind of thing. And um, she's fresh out of college, but she's got on really nice jewelry, like jewelry that is expensive. And so I asked her, do you mind if I ask a question that's going to sound a little biased, but I swear it's related (laughs) And she's like, no, go ahead. Why? And I was like, well, you're 28. You're a year and a half out of college. You just started your job. How is it that you have some of the nicest jewelry I've ever seen? Like you don't wear costume jewelry. It's all 24 karat gold. And she's like, oh, I'm allergic to nickel. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. Um, You said you have your surgeon's cell phone number? And she said, yes. And I said, I need you to call him right now. And she's like, why? And I said, we're going to have to meet you at the ER. And she said, what do you mean? I said, we're not treating you today. You're going into liver failure. You're having a reaction to the pin they stuck in your leg. Wow. And nickel. Yeah, from nickel. Um, She was allergic to the pin. She was allergic to the bone cement. She was allergic to the glue. And she had like a full-blown autoimmune reaction. And her liver was trying to detox all of this stuff all at the same time. And just went into failure. Um, And yeah, they put her on immune suppressant drugs for two weeks until they could get to the point where they felt like she was healthy enough to take out the pin. And when they took it out, her bone was green. No way. Yeah. I wish I had the picture still. Yeah, man. Yeah. You you did save her life. So yeah, that was a pretty, that was like the biggest, like, okay, I am, I'm, I'm doing the right thing in looking into all this functional medicine stuff because it literally is all, your body is one ecosystem. And if we're just treating the individual parts and pieces, we're doing people a disservice. Absolutely. It's about fixing the problem, not just treating symptoms. Yeah. And I can't imagine, Marcy, if she hadn't have found you, I can't imagine, because eventually she would have ended up in the ER. I, you know, you were put in that place for a reason, because I don't think, you know, the chance of anybody else finding that would have been slim. I mean, you know, to none. We actually had a podiatrist um, that for much of his career worked on, um, allergies to implants and especially nickel. We interviewed him on our podcast, Dr. Scott Schroeder, um, last year, I believe. And it was a, 
it was a very telling podcast. I learned a lot. And, you know, so there's been a lot of, you know, um, more, and people might not be as severe as what this gal was, but they might just have more subtle symptoms. And so there's been a lot of hardware removed over the last few years because people are recognizing that. Now, titanium, I can't remember. Dr. Schroeder was talking about it. Titanium does have nickel in it sometimes. Or do all implants have nickel in them? Or how do we how do we know? The most common implant use is surgical steel or chromium cobalt. Um, and they've stopped doing the chromium cobalt as much because then people need a blood test every six months because the chromium can leak into the blood and all that stuff. And then you have to remove the hardware. Um, so the surgical steel is 5% nickel. Um, the titanium is usually less than 0.01% nickel. Um, if it has it in it, but you can get a pure titanium implant and it does have to be approved by the insurance because obviously it's like three times the price. Um, But it also, I mean, similar to what your, the podiatrist, Dr. Schroeder was saying, right? um, He was taking implants out for a variety of symptoms. You know, eight months after I saw this girl, I had a gal who had had a pin put in her toe and and the wound wasn't healing. You know, six months later, she still got a wound that keeps opening up. And I was like, you need to have that implant taken out. And the surgeon kept telling her I was wrong. Yeah. And exactly. finally, she went and saw a different surgeon, took the pen out three weeks later, wound closed. I know. And, and you know, I mean, surgeons are going to be, they're going to protect that because they're going to, they don't want to admit that for many, many years, they may have been causing problems with some of these implants. And it's nothing personal. It's just, you know, we need to recognize it as healthcare professionals. I mean, you know, and so we can help patients. And I think one of the things too, that they forget is that for years, this may not have really been a big problem, but as the world continues, our level of toxic exposure exactly. becomes more. And so our bodies are willing to tolerate a lot less. Yeah. Our food sources are not as good, all that kind of stuff. Our foods have more toxins in them. Our water has more toxins in them. So awesome. You know, Marcy, this has been very enlightening. We have a question from from a, a viewer. Um, you know, you know, I went down the rabbit hole of eating during workouts and before workouts. So I love answering this one. I'm going to let you answer first, and then I am going to answer. So, Lee Pants, thank you for the question. So, protein over carbs before workout. Marcy. Um, Lee, I think it's person-dependent. So, in my specific situation, um, eating the carbs, um, especially when you're thinking about eating things like a cliff bar or um, I don't even know what some of the nutrition bars are now because I stopped eating them 13 <laughs> right. years ago. For oh, Well, wait, we're in 2020. And I my last triathlon was 2009. And I stopped eating carbs before a workout in 2007. So 15 years ago. Um, uh, I, I think it really is person dependent. If you're somebody who has a pretty sensitive GI tract um, and you have had a reaction to any kind of grains, if you've had a reaction to like some people... Um, get what they call runner's diarrhea and they'll eat something like kale or a salad before they go on a run. Obviously, your system's having trouble breaking that down in a way that's efficient and helping you absorb the nutrients. So I think it's more person dependent than just saying you have to eat this or you have to eat this. I think it really truly is like, what does your body respond best to? And I learned that my body really responded well to eating a steak the night before an Ironman as opposed to eating a salad and pasta. 
Yeah. And you got to find out what works for you. Now, here's what I say about we, 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 we talk so much and there's supplements that are sold, you know, pre-workout, post-workout. And so people are always concerned about what to eat before and after workout. And and here's my first answer. Let, let's let's just admit that most of the reason that most people now Lee is, you know, is not overweight, but he does want to maintain a healthy body weight. And I will tell you, you said you spoke of a cliff bar. Let's say you do eat a cliff bar before a workout. Most people's workouts, they're going to burn between, you know, if they if they don't work out super intensely, which most people in a gym don't, um, you know, they're going to burn between three and 400 calories during that workout. Cliff bar has 270 calories. So if your major goal is to lose weight or maintain weight and you're doing short workouts, which most people are, if you're spending more than an hour in the gym, you're spending way too much time in the gym. Unless you're an endurance athlete, you're doing biking or running or something. An hour in the gym is plenty. You don't need pre-workout food. Right. Um, You have enough reserves for glycogen alone an intense exercise, a thousand calories an hour for an hour and a half right. of, of calories. So 1500 calories. So I typically, I do not eat pre-workout unless I have a, unless I'm having a race and um, the race is going to be over an hour um, because you just don't need those extra calories. Same thing with post-workout, especially if you're looking to lose weight, don't eat before and after workouts N- necessarily. Don't eat extra, just eat regular you know, and that will at least maintain or um, maybe even possibly help you lose a little bit of weight. Well, and I think in like in conjunction with that, that, you know, there's been some research lately on like fasted cardio, right? And actually being able to get into all of the glycogen stores because you've used some of it overnight to help process food and then you're burning the rest of it. Um, and I, I, I think too, this question about eating before a workout, like it, it depends on what time of day you're working out, right? Like if you're somebody who gets up and goes to the gym, do it fasted. It's not really going to, I mean, even when I was swimming for 90 minutes after first waking up, I didn't need food. No. Um, I can make it through that 90 minute swim. And when I go swim, I mean, I'm a swimmer. So when I go swim, it's an intense workout and I try and give 80% at every workout. So you you don't need those calories. And then the other thing to remember too is that whenever your first calorie happens, 12 hours later needs to be your last calorie and not I'm sitting down to a meal. It needs to be the last thing you stick in your mouth 12 hours later exactly because your hormones for producing fat versus helping your body be efficient function in that 12-hour window. So if you're somebody who gets up and goes to the gym at 4 and you eat before that, you have to stop eating by 4 p.m. So you really want to consider when you're working out to and what you stick in your mouth. Well, I tell you what, we got to wrap up this podcast, Marcy, but we got to have you back on because we're going to talk about fasting (laughs) and hormones, um, which is what my wife and I specialize in. So we definitely want to have you back on. Um, As we wrap up this show, Marcy, what do you have a passion for? I really believe that people make all of this health stuff too complicated. And I let my tagline on my website is improving health six weeks at a time because it really can be done. I mean, we've, I've been one of my programs, we've seen people literally change their health, come off blood pressure medication, metformin, um, cholesterol meds in less than six weeks. 
um, all just by changing their nutrition strategy and adding walking 20 minutes a day. It's not hard. It's not complicated. Stop making it hard. Um, you're right. I mean, and you gave some simple tools today, elimination diet, and I want to have you back on so we can go more in depth. Um, I've got your LinkedIn streaming. Um, what is it? I think that's how I got in touch with you. Um, what is the best way to get a hold of you if somebody has any questions? Um, either LinkedIn or Dr. Marcy at agilityphysio.com. Um, and then if they're if they're looking for um, like social media, I'm probably do the most on TikTok, and that's um, at 5280 Restorative Med. Maybe that's where I found you on TikTok. I can't remember. I can't remember. You're, you're everywhere. If you if you Google her, you'll find her. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with that last name. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And I hope I pronounced it right. Did I pronounce it right? You were close. It's Catalo Madruga. Catalo. Yep. So it's not yo. It's not like in Spanish. It would the LL would be yo. It's Catalo yep. Madruga. Okay. Awesome. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for being on today. You've helped us realize our goal of educating and empowering consumers to take charge of their own health. So um, we will uh, reach out and we'll have you back on our show to talk more. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. And listeners and viewers, tune in to our regularly scheduled podcast, Monday, 1230 to 1.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'm not even sure who our guest is, but it's going to be good. So listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. Thank you.